great. Thank you very much, Bob. Very kind. Uh, so this is also the first in-person talk that I've given for two and a half years or so, so I'm feeling slightly nervous, see if I can remember how to do it as we get going. But I, for those of you who don't know, I did all of my studying in London, and I used to come to the Aristotelian Society pretty often when I did that, so it feels nice that the first kind of return event I do is at the Aristotelian. feels like kind of coming home, so that's good. Um, so just to give you a little bit of a sense of where this material sits, so as Bob said, I've got a Leverhulme grant at the moment, and I'm trying to write a book about issues to do with rationality. And this material is kind of a bit of a pricey of pretty much the first half of the book. So <laughs> the level of detail is going to be pretty sketchy. There's not that many arguments in it, but I thought it might be interesting. I hope it might be interesting to get a bit of a sense of how I think these issues these hang together at quite a, a high level of abstraction. So the plan for tonight, then, I'm going to start by telling you what I take a reason to be and what I take it, or what we might think it is to be rational. Obviously, those are pretty massive issues, but I'm just going to truncate discussion here by introducing the view that I want to defend, which I'm going to call common sense psychology, better known as folk psychology, but I do this kind of interdisciplinary stuff where the term folk doesn't always travel absolutely brilliantly, so I'm going to call it common sense psychology. And I'm going to really briefly sketch a view of what it is to be rational that gets adopted by lots of the people that I want to talk about here. So I'll call it classical rational choice theory, and it's the kind of assumption about rationality that many parties assume. And once we have those two positions on the table, the objection is going to be very obvious to see. It just looks as if once we think about the way in which people actually make the decisions that they do, how they come to the actions that they perform, turns out that lots of what we do doesn't look like it fits that model, right? So lots of the experimental work seems to show that we don't behave in the way that common sense psychology or classical rational choice theory suggests that we should do. I'm going to suggest that although that's the kind of overarching shape of the argument, it's worth differentiating two slightly different versions that both arrive at the same conclusion. According to one argument for that conclusion, a lot of what we do, a lot of the decisions we make, are arrived at not through thinking about reasons at all. We use some kind of automatic, intuitive, fast, easy, heuristic-driven kind of process that totally circumvents the appeal to reason. That's one kind of objection. Second kind of argument for the same conclusion is that we do try and look at reasons, right? We try and utilize logical systems or reasoning systems, but we do it in a way that's kind of systematically flawed or there's something systematically wrong with our processes that yields the same conclusion, right? That we end up being systematically kind of irrational. And once we've got those two arguments on the table, I'm then going to spend most of my time talking about the first one, this automatic system challenge. We'll look at what the evidence for thinking there is such a thing as the automatic system is. I'll try and suggest really quickly that we should just reject the evidence, and furthermore, that we should reject the kind of overarching model that this objection assumes, which is known as a dual process or a two-systems kind of approach. Having done that, I'll turn to the second argument that I call an improper use challenge, and very briefly, I'll sketch the evidence for that, and I'll suggest that, again, those kinds of features of our reasoning turn out not to be problematic for common sense psychology. And so we'll reach the happy conclusion 
that empirical evidence does not currently show that we're systematically irrational, and so common, common sense psychology's claim about individual rationality should be allowed to stand. And we'll see if I can do that in the next 50 minutes. Okay, so reasons and rationality then to get started. I'm going to operate with a really kind of flat-footed account of what it is to be a reason. I'm going to take reasons to be the kinds of things that appear in the following sorts of schemas. Why did you go into the kitchen? Well, because I wanted a drink and I thought I could get one there. What made Maya run out of the room? Well, she realised it was 5pm and she was worried she would be late. The things that appear after the italicised phrase I take to be just reasons. Okay, they're the reasons, they're the things that rationalise the actions that got undertaken. Obviously, there's a lot of philosophical work we could do here to try and understand what a reason is better. We could think about the difference between subjective and objective reasons. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to assume these things are reasons and that those are examples where an action is held to be intentional because it's the result of rational processing involving mental states that capture a person's reasons. And I take it that that view is a view that has a long philosophical history uh, and it's captured in a view known as folk psychology or common sense psychology. So according to this kind of uh, approach, we are creatures with contentful mental states, a range of mental states, including ones that have representational content. Paradigmatically, those are propositional attitudes like beliefs and desires. And intentional action is the result of rational processing involving those states. So in a slogan, according to common sense psychology, Typically, we do what we do as a result of the reasons that we have. That's the view that I want to defend in the bigger project, uh, and that's the account we'll be trying to defend in today's talk. But obviously, thinking about what a reason is is only going to give us half the story for common sense psychology. We also need to know how reasons need to relate to actions. So what is it to act in light of reasons? What is it to engage in rational processing? Again, that's a massive kind of topic, but the view that many of the people I want to speak about tonight just assume is what I'm going to call classical or ideal rational choice theory. According to this kind of account, a decision is rational if it aims at maximising expected utility for the agent. So what we're trying to aim at when we're doing uh, rational processing is the good of the agent. It considers all of the evidence and it utilises the transitions of classical logic in deterministic environments and probabilistic or probability theory in uncertain or vague situations. If you fulfil all of those three criteria, then you're a rational agent, according to this account. Now, as an approach, I think this doesn't get discussed all that much in philosophy. It's much more common in a range of kind of cognate disciplines where... Uh, the kind of psychology of reasoning is really to the fore. So in psychology, in behavioral economics, in political theory, that's where this view is really to the fore. So in um, behavioral economics, it's common to think of people as homo econom economicus. So the idea is that you're rational, self-interested agents, able to consider all the evidence and arrive at the very best and optimal solution. And again, it's discussed in political theory. But I think this view is in the background of much of the discussion that we're going to be interested in tonight, which is the work in social psychology examining what it is to act for a reason. 
So thinking about common sense psychology, as you'll all be familiar, there's a range of debates in philosophy about common sense psychology. Best known debate is the debate between theory theory and simulation theory, so asking about what the mechanisms might, uh, might be involved in coming to a decision, coming to a reason. But as people like Nichols and Stitch have pointed out, all of those kind of extant debates about common sense psychology and its status and its scope share an assumption. And the assumption is that that model that we just looked at, which is that actions are intentional actions as a result of processing of reasons, they assume that that picture is right. But the worry that recently has emerged about the common sense view is that maybe that fundamental assumption is the wrong assumption. Maybe actually intentional action is often not the result of rational processing of reasons. And indeed, there's a good reason for thinking that's the case because it looks as if experimental work demonstrates that maybe often or regularly or systematically, we don't do what we do in light of the reasons that we have. So John Doris, in a 2015 book, was very exercised by this challenge. The, book is about, the whole book is about this worry. And he frames the challenge as follows. This is a slightly long quote, so I apologize. But Doris writes, where the causes of an agent's cognitional behavior would not be recognized by the actor as reasons for that cognition or behavior, were she aware of these causes at the time of performance, these causes are defeaters. Where defeaters obtain, the exercise of agency does not obtain. If the presence of defeaters cannot be confidently ruled out for a particular behaviour, it is not justified to attribute the actor an exercise of agency. Unfortunately, the empirical evidence indicates that defeaters occur quite frequently in everyday life. So Doris's worry here is that our actions are caused very often by what he terms unsavoury causes. Causes that we wouldn't recognize as a reason were we to become aware of them and aware of the role they were playing. We're going to really turn to the evidence for this in a minute, but just to give you an example of the kind of case that he has in mind, um, this is research that gets discussed by Thaler and Sunstein in their famous book, Nudge. So it turns out that where a snack is located in a display in a cafeteria influences people's shopping behavior. So if you go into a cafeteria and there are apples in your eye line, you're more likely to buy the apple for your snacks than the chocolate bar that's located on the bottom shelf. And if you switch those two items around, people turn out to be more likely to buy the chocolate bar. But presumably, location in a display is not something that someone would accept as a good reason for making the snack-buying choice that they do. So that looks like a kind of unsavory cause. You can manipulate what people decide to do through what Thaler and Sunstein call features of the choice architecture. It's nothing about the agent, it's about the way you're presenting the choice to them. So that's the worry then, and we'll look at some further evidence for it in a minute. The worry is that there's a wealth of experimental evidence that's going to show that classical rational choice theory fails to predict how humans actually behave in genuine choice situations that they face. So contra common sense psychology, often we don't actually act in light of our reasons. But as I said in the plan, I think it's going to be helpful to hold apart two rather different arguments for that conclusion. On the one hand, we have an argument that says, 
when agents come to arrive at the decisions they do, often they're not even trying to reason. What they're doing is using some kind of automatic, intuitive system that just bypasses our reasoning mechanisms. We're struck by an intuitive answer, and we just go with that. We don't bother thinking about reasons. So that's going to be this challenge to do with the automatic system that we'll look at first. But I think it's worth holding that apart from a second challenge, which says that Typically, we do try and reason, right? Typically, we do try and think about the evidence and what it's re evidence for and arrive at a reasoned um, solution. But something about the way that we engage in that reasoning, something about our logical systems means that it's, we're just arriving at mistaken results all the time. We have some fundamental flaw in our reasoning systems. I'm going to hold these two approaches apart because I think they press on rather different aspects of the common sense view. And I'm going to talk as if these arguments break down across theorists, but that's a bit of a, you know, facade, really. The automatic system is definitely associated with people like Kahneman and Tversky, but actually, if you look at Kahneman and Tversky, they run both of these arguments. So it's not really the case that these break down along kind of theorist lines, but still, I think it's going to be helpful to hold them apart. So let's begin by thinking about the automatic system challenge. I'm guessing this is pretty familiar to lots of people in the audience. But according to people like Kahneman, Tversky, like Evans, a range of people, we should think of our reason, um, think of our decision-making mechanisms as falling into two very different camps. There's a big difference between whether we think of them as two different systems or just two different kinds of processes. But again, that's not an issue I'm going to focus on tonight, so I'm going to use process and system talk interchangeably. So the thought is that we have one system for making decisions, which is a fast, automatic, intuitive, heuristic-governed kind of process. So we just get a kind of snappy, immediate response to the problems that we face. Cognitive heuristics here are often introduced via a parallel with sort of visual processing. So when uh, Kahneman and Tversky first introduced the notion, they do so via this kind of visual heuristic. Um, the rule of thumb that an object which appears blurry is far further away. So it looks as if we have this way of ranking objects that we come across depending on their visual properties. If they seem blurry, they're probably further away. If they seem sharp, they're probably closer. As Kahneman and Tversky point out, that Heuristic, that rule of thumb, works pretty well in general, gives us a good way of kind of roughly ranking objects in terms of distance, but it's susceptible to certain kinds of error. So if we find ourselves in conditions where the lighting conditions are very bad, where it's raining, where there is some kind of prevailing condition, that rule of thumb is going to fail because an object which seems blurry when the lighting conditions are bad may be closer to us than we think. And that reveals this tendency that heuristics have, which is to work well in a range of situations, but to lead us into error in predictable kinds of ways. So system one then is supposed to involve these non-rational processes which sacrifice accuracy for speed. They circumvent the kind of thing that system two does, which is a slow, reflective, effortful, deliberative kind of process using the rules of logic or the rules of probability theory and interrogating our reasons in a way that system one doesn't bother with. 
Once we have these two systems, the question then is obviously how they relate to one another. And the most common stance in the literature is to adopt what's known as a default interventionist model. According to this picture, system one provides the default response to decision-making problems. If we're faced with a decision-making problem, we default to this kind of system of habit or intuition, and we only override the result that gives us if our system two becomes aware that there's some sort of problem with the system one answer. So we default to system one, and we only uh, get system two into the picture if we have this notion of conflict awareness, if we become aware that there's a problem. So that's the overarching model. Why should we think that it holds? Why should we think that there's an automatic system generating these kinds of decisions for us? Well, Kahneman and Tversky have a range of experimental evidence that they want to point to, and the first piece of evidence comes from what's called the cognitive reflection test, which was first put forward in a paper by Frederick in 2005. I'm going to take it that most people are familiar with this bat and ball case. Is that right? Is there anyone here who has not come across the bat and ball case before? Oh, David, how lovely. Excellent. Well, you, <laughs> you can genuinely do this. Everybody else just has to pretend they haven't heard it before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and if you get it wrong, you have to leave. Oh, don't look at the handout. No, that's outrageous. Um, okay, so there were only three questions in Frederick's original paper. The cognitive reflection test in its original incarnation had just three questions on it. This, I think, is the most famous and the most challenging one of it. So Frederick posed this question to a range of university students. You get the vignette. A bat and a ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does... Oh, sorry. Yeah, the bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? It turns out that people have a really strong intuitive response to this question. Most people want to say 10 cents. Not everybody, but most people have a really strong pull to giving the answer 10 cents. But 10 cents, although it's the intuitive answer, can't be the logical answer. Because if the ball costs 10 cents, then the bat is only 90 cents more than it. So the answer has to be 5 cents, according to logic. And as for the bat and ball case, so for the other cases that Frederick gave us, and in fact, there's also been a kind of cottage industry grown up of generating these kinds of tests for people, so that the fact that we've all seen the bat and ball, we can still get surprised by some other similar kind of case. And the phenomenon that we're interested in then is that there's a strong intuitive answer that our system one wants to give, but it turns out to be wrong once we reflect on it or once someone shows us so the cognitive reflection test then is evidence for the automatic system in action. And Kahneman and Tversky, uh, so Kahneman uses that in his very influential 2011 book. And obviously earlier than that, Kahneman and Tversky had argued for the same kind of claim, looking at a range of experimental evidence supporting this idea that we have these cognitive heuristics underpinning our decisions, these rules of thumb that work well in many situations, but not in all. One kind of paper I could have given tonight was to run through a whole lot of them and look at them in detail. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you one to give you a kind of flavor and then just mention a couple more and then move on. So the very first heuristic that Kahneman and Tversky introduced in their 1975 paper was the heuristic of representativeness, according to which we assess the likelihood of X being F via X's similarity to other known Fs. So that's a heuristic that works pretty well in most situations, but it overlooks 
certain kinds of facts which may influence the result here. So, for instance, it doesn't look to the base rate of Fs in our environment, which is going to influence how likely it is that X is F. And furthermore, it leads to worries like this. Okay, so this is another of Kahneman's incredibly famous examples. Can you guess, David, have you seen this? <laughs> oh, you've seen this one. No, okay, so everyone's seen this one, I'm guessing. But uh, Kahneman gave the following kind of vignette to people. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Which is more probable, that Linda is a bank teller or that Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. Just like with the CRT, we have the same kind of profile here. We have an intuitive answer that almost everybody wants to give, which is that Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. But the laws of logic tell us that we should have the other answer because there's no way in which a conjunctive claim A and B can be more probable than one of its conjuncts on, the own, on its own A. So, according to logic, the answer ought to be I, but people feel this gut intuition that the answer they want to give is two. And here's Thaler and Sunstein discussing this kind of case in their book. They say the error, the, the desire to give answer two, stems from the use of the representativeness heuristic. Linda's description seems to match bank teller and active in the feminist movement far better than bank teller alone. As Stephen Jay Gould once observed, I know the right answer, yet a little homunculus in my head continues to jump up and down, shouting at me, but she can't just be a bank teller. Read the description. Gould's homunculus is the automatic system in operation. Okay, so again, we have this idea that we can see that we have this automatic system because when we actually look at the decisions people make, the judgments they come to, we're operating in a way that doesn't fit with the rules of logic and probability. Whole range of other heuristics we could have looked at. The second heuristic is availability. The idea that the likelihood of F occurring is assessed by the subject's familiarity with other instances of F. Again, it's a heuristic that works well, but in an environment where a particularly rare event gets a lot of coverage or is particularly salient, as for instance with terrorist attacks, this heuristic is going to lead people to overestimate, overestimate sorry, um, the likelihood of that event occurring. Anchoring and adjustment, the idea that the likelihood or value of X is assessed from a potentially irrelevant contextual anchor point with adjustments made from that point. So if I ask you about the population size of New York, you may not know that, but maybe you know about some other city. I'm from Oxford, so I have a better idea about the population size of Oxford. But if I start with that and then try to estimate up to New York, it's likely that I'm never going to get to the right kind of ballpark figure because Oxford was just too small an anchor point to start with. Confirmation bias, I'm going to come back to this in the second part of the talk, but it looks as if we look for or pay more attention to things that support what we already believe. We ignore counter evidence in a way that we shouldn't. Framing, massive issue of framing. It looks as if irrelevant features of the way information is presented affects the choices people make. So it's well reported that uh, given um, a hypothetical medical procedure, which is des uh, described in one case as having an 80% chance of survival and in another as having a 20% chance of death, people are much more likely to prefer it when it's described in the positive 
chance of survival rather than the negative chance of death. But at least arguably, 80% chance of survival is the same information as 20% chance of death. So it looks as if those changes in our preferences are irrational. They're not responding to the information in the way they should. And finally, there's a whole massive literature, as I'm sure many of you are aware of, discussing ways to kind of operationalize these findings about the heuristics and biases in our thoughts. So work on implicit bias, the idea that we're driven by kind of unconscious connections between the concepts that we have and the stereotypes we use. And the nudge agenda suggesting that in the political arena, what we ought to do is utilize these heuristics people use in order to make people make better decisions. So, ways to kind of operationalize the findings. Oh, not quite fitting. So, that's the evidence, that's the kind of experimental evidence that's supposed to show that we have these two very different systems for making decisions, and one of them is this sort of automatic process which doesn't look to reasons at all. What should the person who wants to defend common sense psychology say in light of this kind of evidence? Well, I think the first thing she should do is challenge the evidence itself. So a well-known point that I'm not really going to go into here is that there are some really serious methodological worries about at least some of the experimental work. So I'm sure many of you will be familiar with the so-called replication crisis in social psychology. It turns out that many of the kind of most exciting results in this area are ones that people can't replicate in different labs. So um, <clears throat> just to give you an example of that, in his 2011 book, one of the uh, research findings that Kahneman discusses at length is work by a guy called John Barr, which seemed to show that people who are exposed to stereotypes about old age behave in ways that reflect those judgments about old age. So if you expose people to pictures of old people in old age, if you expose people to descriptions of people in old age, when they get up and leave the experimental room, unbeknownst to them, allegedly, they move more slowly <laughs> because they're thinking about what it is to be old. Turns out that nobody else has been able to replicate those kinds of findings. So they look quite dodgy. Um, so I think replication, philosophers should really pay attention to replication and should really think about which of these results look robust. I'm not going to talk about it tonight, though, because the examples I gave you earlier are all ones that do replicate, right? Representativeness, heuristic, you can do that in lots of different ways. I mentioned the fact that the CRT has been developed in lots of different versions. They all, the findings in those cases do replicate, so... It's going to be a partial solution here, but not a complete solution. I'm going to leave ecological validity till later, I think, actually. So I think what a defender of common sense psychology should say at this juncture is there's not one kind of silver bullet that just gets rid of all of the evidence here. But we should be careful about each piece of evidence and think about ways in which we might be able to resolve it. Some of that might be via replication. Some of it, I think, is via a better sensitivity to the pragmatics of the experimental situations and to the kind of higher-order evidence that people have access to. So for those of you who might know some of my other work, it's mostly in philosophy of language, and this is the way that I kind of got into this project, was thinking that some of these experimental prompts are just not paying attention to the kinds of pragmatics of the communicative exchange that participants are engaged in. So here's perhaps a more controversial version of it. 
Think about the bat and ball case that we just looked at, right? People have a really strong intuitive response often that they want to say 10 cents. But I think that might be reflecting a perfectly reasonable understanding of the experimental materials the person is given. The CRT question depends upon the claim the bat costs one dollar more than the ball being heard as telling you something about the relative value of those two items. But that's quite an unusual kind of claim. Much more natural kind of claim is, you know, how much do I have to pay for the bat once I've already bought the ball? I've just bought the ball. How much more do I need to get the bat? And if you hear the experimental prompt in that way, then actually the response 10 cents is the right response. So it seems to me that what you get here, when you get some people saying 5 cents and some people saying 10 cents, is just the fact that people are disambiguating an ambiguous prompt in different kinds of ways. Some people are hearing it as expressing something about a relative value claim. Some people are hearing it in the more practical, I'm shopping, how much more money do I need to get this new item? Or again, take the Linda case that we just looked at. Right, so remember the quote from Thaler and Sunstein, who quoted Gould as saying, she can't just be a bank teller, read the description. And that's absolutely right, okay, you should read the description. What participants are doing here is trying to make sense of what this weird social psychology experimenter is trying to tell them. They've just spent, you know, four lines of the vignette telling you about all her activity in the political sphere, anti-nuclear demonstrations. Why would they bother telling you that if they weren't trying to imply that Linda was a feminist? So it's right that if you read the description, you're going to think that that second proposal is the one that the experimenter is trying to get across to you. And that's what I think people are responding to when they give the second answer here. It's not mass irrationality. It's just the fact that people pay attention to pragmatics and the experimenters put a lot of pragmatic work into telling you that she's a feminist. And finally, think about framing effects. Why should we prefer a procedure when it's described in terms of an 80% chance of survival over a 20% chance of death? Well, that's because the positive framing tells you something about the way that the medical professional, in this case, is seeing the situation. They're telling you that 80% chance of survival is a good option for you in your present situation. If someone tells you that it's got a 20% chance of death, they're pragmatically conveying to you that the risks are particularly pressing in this kind of case that they're to the fore. So it's quite rational to have a different response to, the, to the, those two kinds of claims, right? One is a positive claim, one is a negative kind of claim. So a proper sensitivity to the pragmatics here can explain, I think, all of the differences around framing. And in fact, I should note that that's a solution that's been adopted in a range of places. People have suggested different mechanisms for embedding that kind of pragmatic information. Sometimes it's done in terms of what's called a contextual reference point. I don't want to take a stand on what the right kind of pragmatic mechanism is. I just want to suggest that if we think about the pragmatics of communication in these kinds of framing cases, it can come to seem entirely rational for someone to take different stances to the same semantic information because they're sensitive to the pragmatics of the situation. 
Okay, so I think there are lots of things that a defender of common sense psychology can do to try and um, negate some of this evidence that apparently shows there's widespread irrationality in our decisions. But furthermore, I think that she should also challenge the kind of dual system or two-process model of decision-making that this objection belongs to. So dual process models are premised on the idea that we can individuate sort of automatic, intuitive, or unreasoned decision-making in contrast to rational, logical decision-making. And we do that individuation using one or a bundle of other properties. But it turns out to be extremely unclear that we can do this. I should say, that should say Samuels et al. It's Samuels and Stitch and various other people. They talk about this problem, as does Karen in social psychology. So the worry is that when we think about the positive properties that have been used to individuate system one, the ones I gave you on a slide earlier, it turns out that those are all properties that can apply to logical reasoning just as much as they apply to heuristic reasoning. So, for instance, heuristics are sometimes understood as things that involve just simple rules, or maybe even no rules at all. But that doesn't seem right, okay, because some heuristics are going to be complex and some logical rules are incredibly simple. Think about a rule like conjunction elimination, the fact that you can go from A and B to just A. That seems like a pretty simple kind of operation. And it's not clear to me what kind of metric of simplicity could judge that to be complex while simultaneously holding that some kinds of really quite difficult associative learning that people do is simple. It's not obvious that there's going to be any sort of metric of simplicity here that's going to do that work. And furthermore, we certainly can't think that heuristics are things that have no rules at all because they're generally held to be computational. If you're computational, you've got to be rule-based. And if you think about the visual heuristic we gave you at the beginning, that's definitely a rule, right? The claim that if an object appears blurry, it's further away. That's a rule. It's just an approximating kind of rule. So it doesn't seem as if we can understand heuristics as things that involve only simple rules in a way that that's going to rule out logical processing. What about the kind of phenomenological properties? So I told you that heuristics are things which happen fast or unconscious or automatic. But it looks as if logical processes can have all those properties as well. And indeed, that's something that even some advocates of a dual process account have started to notice. So Denise has a, a paper recently in which he's very exercised by this kind of worry. And in fact, we can see this already in the experimental literature, right? So think back to when I introduced the CRT to you, the bat and ball case. I told you that the majority of people give the 10 cents answer, but a minority give you the 5 cents answer. And they give you the five-sense answer as their fast, automatic, intuitive answer. So if the five-cent answer is supposed to be the one that's driven by logic, for those people, the logical answer is the one that's fast and automatic and unconscious and all those other things. And in fact, Denais, when he recognizes this point, comes to the suggestion that we should hang on to the dual process model, but we should allow that system one does some kinds of logical processing and system two does some other kinds of logical processing. But that seems to me to be to just junk the whole dual process distinction, right? It was supposed to be, at least in the version for the automatic challenge, it was supposed to be a kind of system that just didn't bother looking at reasons, didn't bother doing kind of logical processing. So this looks like a problem for this kind of account. 
Um, a third kind of property we might use for individuating heuristics is to say that they're things that are particularly error-prone. But as someone like Gerd Gigerenza has pointed out, the heuristics don't seem any more error-prone than some kinds of logical reasoning. They work well in the situations in which they're supposed to work. Um, and so again, this isn't going to be a property that gives us a distinction between kinds of processing, logical processing on the one hand and uh, heuristic processing on the other. So what I want to suggest is that a better picture, in fact, I think I'm going to say this in a minute, so we might try and go finally, those are positive definitions where we try and individuate heuristics in terms of positive characteristics. We could just go for a negative definition and we could just say a heuristic is any kind of decision-making process which doesn't look to classical logic, doesn't look to probability theory, does something else, like maybe looks to a stereotype or looks to an associative process or one of those things. We could definitely do that, but it's not really clear why we would bother. Why we would bother having this category of you know, so we've got classical logic and probability theory on one side, and then we've got everything else on the other. Why we need a special ca category of everything else seems unclear. And indeed, it's going to obliterate distinctions that it's going to be better to hang on to, I think. It's going to put in one basket here things like associative processing, appeals to stereotypes. You know, there's no reason to think those two kinds of thinking processes have anything much in common. And so putting them in one basket together isn't going to give us a helpful um, uh, kind of grouping. And I think the lesson from this kind of worry, this recognition that logical processes can have all of the kinds of properties that are supposed to be traditionally associated with heuristic processing, the moral of the story is that these kinds of processes, like being fast or unconscious or automatic, are free-floating, right? They don't divide up categories of thoughts. They're things that logical processing can have, things that probability reasoning can have, things that associative reasoning can have. All of these mechanisms, instances of these mechanisms, fall on a spectrum. And indeed, we can shift them depending on the context, right? So how quick you are at providing a solution using a logical rule is probably going to depend on whether you've been teaching logic recently or not. If you've been teaching logic, you're probably going to be pretty quick at it, and it's going to be pretty automatic for you. If you're, this is the first time you've come across a logical puzzle, you're likely to be slower and find it more difficult. But that kind of situational malleability, I think, makes it very unlikely that we should use those kinds of properties to dictate claims about kinds of processing or structures of our cognitive architecture. Okay, so I think we should reject the evidence, much of the evidence for the automatic system, and we should reject the overarching model that this belongs to, the automatic system belongs to. I do think the advocate of common sense psychology should make some concessions based on this evidence, however. And in particular, I think it should make us go back to the assumption that we adopted from behavioral economics and from political theory that the right account of human rationality is something like classical rational choice theory. Clearly, that is a very uh, demanding, ideal kind of theory. And the fact that it turns out that people don't reason in that kind of way looks like it should reflect badly on that as the normative standard for reasoning rather than reflecting badly on what we actually do. So in line with some theorists in social psychology, I think we should refine our account of what it is to be rational. We should require 
that rational agents aim at good enough solutions, do what uh, is called satisficing rather than maximizing. But that's something that philosophers have been happy with for ages, right? Moral philosophers often talk in terms of satisficing rather than maximizing. We should agree with someone like Gigarenza that rational processes may look at only some of the evidence rather than having to look at all of the evidence. You know, if, if you could only be rational if you looked at every relevant piece of evidence for a given decision, it's unlikely that any of us would ever turn out to be rational. So we need to allow that a more realistic account of human rationality is one that could look at just some of the evidence rather than all of it. And we should allow that there are multiple kinds of processes that are involved in our decision-making activities. We use the transitions of classical logic sometimes. We use the transitions of probability theory sometimes. And we also do other stuff, like we make associations between categories. We appeal to stereotypes. And maybe we do all sorts of other stuff as well. But all of those processes can contribute towards rational decisions. So I think that kind of relaxation about classical rational choice theory, together with a richer understanding of the pragmatics of experimental materials, can help to resolve the challenge from the automatic system. Okay, I think I've got maybe 10 minutes left. Does that sound about right? So in the last 10 minutes, I'm just going to quickly trot through the other objection that I gave you. So this automatic system challenge said that we use a decision-making process which circumvents any appeal to reason, just relies on kind of these automatic connections. I'm suggesting to you that we can do things to uh, mitigate that kind of challenge by adopting this kind of more relaxed picture of rationality. But adopting this more relaxed picture of rationality looks like it might open us up to a new kind of challenge about irrationality. In particular, the second claim that a process can be rational if it looks at just some of the evidence. Because a range of theorists have suggested that some processes look at just such a selective range of evidence that they can't possibly be counted as rational. So that's the worry about improper use that I'm going to look at in the last few minutes. So the worry here is that agents arrive at decisions or judgments using reasoning mechanisms, so involving logic or probability or some other reasoning process, but their use of these systems fails in a systematic kind of way to reach the standards required for rational decision-making. There is something fundamentally wrong with the way in which we deploy our reasoning resources, which leads to the same conclusion as the automatic system did. Right, it leads to the conclusion that we're all systematically irrational. The evidence for this claim comes, I think, from three areas. The weights and selection task, what's called motivated reasoning, and something with a very uncatchy title of belief polarization due to belief disconfirmation. I'm going to skip the weights and task because we're a bit short of time, and I'll just tell you about the, the other two sources of evidence. Have you done the weights and task, David? <laughs> okay, so motivated reasoning then. What is motivated reasoning and why should we worry about it? It turns out there's experimental research to show us that subjects tend to pay attention to things that support what they already believe and to ignore counter-evidence. That people tend to be overconfident, attributing too high a degree of credence to the things they already believe. 
and they, intend, and they tend to engage in belief polarization. That's where groups of like-minded individuals reinforce a shared belief via an appeal to poor reasons. All of those features of our reasoning look like they might show us to be systematically irrational. Those don't look like the kinds of things that a rational agent should engage in. And indeed, that's the conclusion that Mercer and Spurbier have suggested, at least when we're thinking about individual rationality. So they say, again, this is a rather long quote, apologies. Mercer and Sperber write, what people find difficult is not looking for counter-evidence or counter-arguments in general, but only when what is being challenged is their own opinion. Reasoning systematically works to find reasons for our ideas and against ideas we oppose. It always takes our side. This is pretty much the exact opposite of what you should expect of a mechanism that aims at improving one's belief through solitary ratiocination. There is no obvious way to explain the my side bias from within the intellectualist approach to reasoning. Okay, so the intellectualist approach to reasoning is, you know, the one I'm attributing to common sense psychology, this idea that we're individually rational, we make decisions in the light of our reasons. Mercer and Sperber are telling you here that that can't be the right picture because the way that we uh, search for and assimilate evidence shows that we're just systematically flawed. They go on to argue that that doesn't show that reasoning as a whole isn't uh, kind of adaptive because they think it lends itself to getting better solutions for the group. The fact that we're all individually irrational and we're just blindly arguing for the things we already believe means that as a group we are going to end up with some good solutions, right? Because we're going to hear the strongest case for every position because everyone's hanging on to their own view. So they're happy with the idea that reasoning as a whole lends itself to rational decision-making. They just don't think it works at an individual level. They think it works at a social community level. And finally, Mandelbaum, in a recent paper, has argued that even worse than that, even worse than kind of motivated reasoning, there's this worry about what we might call belief polarization due to belief disconfirmation. So the thought is that sometimes subjects increase their degree of credence in a proposition P while simultaneously accepting disconfirming evidence of P. So you accept something as evidence of not P and that makes you believe P even more. That looks like a real problem, right? That does look like the exact opposite of what is predicted by a Bayesian belief updating procedure. The strongest evidence of this phenomenon is to do with religious beliefs, particularly nice cases or particularly pressing kind of cases around millennial cults. If you belong to a cult that believes that uh, the world's going to end on the 25th of April, is that where we are today? Yes, 25th of April. If you were a, a member of a cult like that and you got through to the 26th of April, that looks like it's pretty strong disconfirming evidence for the tenants of the cult. But what experimenters have found is that people in cults like that will, at that point, find some way of, or that, that fact that they've gone beyond the point at which the world was supposed to end will actually increase, for some people, their belief in the predictions of the cult and the tenets of the cult. But Mandelbaum's point is also that that, that kind of practice turns out to occur not just with religious belief, it also occurs with more kind of ordinary beliefs, and he looks to a range of experimental work to do with our attitudes to technology, our attitudes to gun control, our attitudes to health uh, procedures, 
all of which seem to show this same kind of feature of increasing credence given accepted disconfirming evidence. So that leads Mandelbaum to conclude that our cognitive system is set up to properly output actions we categorize as irrational, and he claims that that's in order to protect an individual's sense of self. He doesn't refer to Dan Kahneman, I think, but that's a position that's been argued for in a range of works by the social psychologist Dan Kahneman. Okay, so what should a defender of common sense psychology say here? I'm going to again skip the Waysen task and concentrate on motivated reasoning because I think it's more interesting. I want to suggest to you that contra Mercier and Sperber, there's nothing in principle wrong with doing motivated reasoning, right? The idea that we search for and assimilate evidence on the basis of what we already believe is actually, in principle, perfectly rational. Because if we allow that a rational process can look to some rather than all of the evidence and arrive at good enough rather than optimal <coughs> decisions, it's going to turn out that a process should ignore some counter-evidence. So Mandelbaum discusses this experimental finding that if participants have already made a kind of hypothetical decision about what kind of car they're going to buy, they're going to buy a Ford, it then turns out that when you put them in the waiting room, they flick past Toyota ads without paying any attention. Okay? And that's supposed to be evidence of a flawed reasoning process because, you know, that presumably what the Toyota ad says is counter-evidence to your decision to buy a Ford. But of course, that's a perfectly rational thing to do. People have a lot of decisions to make and a lot of evidence to deal with. Once you've made up your mind to buy a Ford, as long as you've looked at some of the evidence and you've reached a good enough conclusion, you should stop paying attention to the counter evidence. Otherwise, you're never going to get anywhere, right? You're not going to buy a car. You're not going to leave the room. You have to stop somewhere. And so once we recognize that, we should allow that motivated reasoning, in principle, is rational. Now, of course, there's a balance to be struck, right? There's a balance between too great a degree of belief preservation, too much skepticism or ignoring of evidence that you're being presented with. That can slide over into a kind of irrational fact blindness, an unwarranted dismissal of counter-evidence. But that doesn't change the fact that, in principle, motivated reasoning is okay. And in fact, that's something that Tabor and Lodge, someone that gets appealed to by Mandelbaum and by others in this area, something that they've already noticed, right? So this isn't a paper that Mandelbaum relies on for evidence, uh, and sorry, Mercer and Sperber rely on for evidence of motivated reasoning being problematic. But they note at the end of their paper how we determine the boundary line between rational skepticism and irrational bias is a critical normative question, but it's one that empirical research may not be able to address. Research can explore the conditions under which persuasion occurs, as social psychologists have for decades, but it cannot establish the conditions under which it should occur. It is, of course, the latter question that needs answering if we are to resolve the controversy over the rationality of motivated reasoning. And I just want to agree with Tabor and Lodge here. You know, that's absolutely right. We need to think about where the line is being drawn. But the fact that some instances of motivated reasoning are okay is something I want to argue for. Okay, last, very last slide, I think, or last of two slides. What about Mandelbaum's worry about belief 
polarisation due to belief disconfirmation. Well, in fact, I think the evidence for this is pretty weak uh, with respect to the ordinary beliefs, the things like uh, our attitudes to technology or healthcare or gun control. In fact, in those cases, if you look at the experimental evidence, they look much more like cases of motivated reasoning. It's where people are presented with a piece of evidence that's actually ambiguous, that could support P or could support not P. And if you already believe P, you're more likely to interpret that piece of evidence as support for P than support for not P. But that's what we just talked about with motivated reasoning, right? That's not holding on to P and accepting the evidence as evidence of not P, right? Some of that motivated reasoning may not be rational, but that's a different issue, right? That's the issue we just talked about. Now, Mandelmar may be right that for certain kinds of beliefs, things like religious beliefs, Bayesian reasoning does indeed break down in favour of some kind of self-protection. Maybe there are some beliefs that are just so integrated into my sense of self that I do engage in this kind of irrational ignoring of counter-evidence. But that's not enough to show common sense psychology is wrong, okay? Common sense psychology has always been an account of typical action generation, not a universal claim. It has to allow that there are some kinds of claims that aren't, some kinds of decisions that aren't governed by reasons, and matters of faith may well fall into that category. Okay, so that's been quite a whistle-stop tour, but just to conclude... We started with the view that common sense psychology, or the view of common sense psychology, which claims that typically intentional actions are the result of rational processing of reasons, that we do what we do because of the reasons that we have in general. That view of action generation is challenged by the idea that many of our decisions are driven by an automatic decision-making system which doesn't bother looking to reasons at all. And it's undermined by the claim that our use of our reasoning systems is fundamentally flawed in some way. I suggested to you that contra this first challenge, we can reject much of the evidence for irrational decision-making, explaining it through greater sensitivity to pragmatics and kind of higher-order evidence, and that we should reject the dual process or two-system model on which the challenge is based. Contra the improper reasoning, improper use challenge, I suggested to you that motivated reasoning, which looks like the best example of this kind of flawed use of reasoning systems, motivated reasoning is in principle rational, even if sometimes it leads us into irrationality. Only belief polarisation due to belief disconfirmation is truly problematic for common sense psychology, but I think those are special cases where claims of rationality may indeed be tenuous. They look more like matters of faith to me. So the conclusion I want to reach then is that the experimental evidence does not currently show us that common sense assumption of individual rationality must be rejected. In general, I want to suggest to you we can hang on to the idea that people do indeed act in light of their reasons. Okay, thank you. Thanks.